Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Craig Cuddles with Gigabit uh, Nation. Um, I'm here today, uh, coming back from a, a little bit of a hiatus. I'm going to, as we've always done in the past, uh, bring useful information and insights to help and nonprofit organizations uh, get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be. I had the privilege to speak with um, former Commissioner Clyburn. Um, several weeks ago, and uh, we focus on health, uh, telehealth and broadband's role in this technology and getting this uh, technology into uh, hard-to-service areas. Um, I'm going to kick off right now with that interview. thing about the Lifeline program and for your listeners uh, and viewers um, who don't know, the Lifeline program has been around for a number of years and it is a a federally subsidized program uh, that targets those who are on the other side of the economic and opportunities divide. And what I mean by that, uh, those who, uh, who, whose income um, whose outgo is less than their income. Um, and, and we know a lot of people uh, who are barely, they're struggling to make ends meet. So this program is targeted to those who are uh, below, at or below the poverty line, and it offers a $9.25 per month subsidy to them mm-hmm. uh, for telephone service. Uh, and we expanded it um, uh, two Decembers ago to include broadband service. Uh, it, it had for a number of years included, no matter where your phone was, meaning no matter your home phone or your mobile phone, right. uh, the Lifeline program in the last few years has, has been a, a, a part of that if you qualified. Mm-hmm. Now the FCC majority, particularly the chair, introduced a notice of proposed rulemaking, which any month now, depending on his schedule, um, could be a right for consideration that would disrupt, I think, basically ruin the program as we know it. Uh, Number one, he is saying that any provider must be a facilities-based provider, meaning you have to have your own infrastructure in the ground in order to provide service. 70% of those providers to date are resellers. Um, They are using the infrastructure of um, existing uh, telecommunications providers, and they are differentiating, a, differentiating themselves, uh, providing uh, low um, cost and sometimes no cost targeted um, options uh, for those who cannot afford monthly service. So if you take away their ability to be a reseller, then you basically ruin the program. And there are a number of other, um, you know, things that have been uh, introduced uh, at at the FCC and at the state levels about people having skin in the game. You and I both know that there are a number of people who 
barely make it by, and the $10 a month might be the difference between them eating one week or not. And right. so we're talking about the most economically vulnerable in our community who have but one option. There are, are you know, 12 or 15 million people who have but one option when it comes to telecommunications service. And now we're about to eliminate that for at least 8 million of them. And I, I, it's, it's perplexing to me uh, that um, you're targeting, again, the most vulnerable who cannot um, afford a, a telephone connection. And when's the last time you see a, a payphone? Uh, very rare, very rare. So we had a proceeding yesterday that reinforced something that you and I both know. When I came at the FC, here at the FCC in 2009, there were about seven or 800,000 payphones across this nation. Guess what we discovered um, uh, recently? That in 2016, which means this number is probably lower, there are 100,000 payphones in this nation that are active. Uh, and, and so if you don't have a, a personal phone, you are unlikely, unless you're, you live in a hospital, uh, to have an option when it comes to uh, telephone service. So these are the types of things that are important uh, that policymakers like me uh, make a difference in people's lives, particularly the most economically vulnerable. And that actually is a good lead in into this discussion of telemedicine because you know I've met with a number of telemedicine, telehealth providers. Mm -hmm. And one of their charters is to make um, telehealth, healthcare basically, available and affordable for a lot of people, but particularly the, um, the lower income folks, uh, people who are just for one reason or another are not part of the infrastructure of healthcare, right? And so it seems that if you're uh, attacking, um, you know, Lifeline and programs like that, in essence, you by default are going to impact telehealth. And I think that needs to know because that's, I think, what needs, when people need to know the what's what real about policy and why they should care one way or another, it basically, if it'll affect them in this one, one, one way, would that be a good assessment? So when you think about those who need healthcare attention the most, mm -hmm. it is the poor, and I don't like to use that word. Um, it is the economically disadvantaged. It's often those in rural communities. Right. Those who are on the other side of not only just the economic, but the connectivity divide. Mm -hmm. So the FCC is important in this realm for a number of reasons. One, we have a universal service program that provides a, a high cost, what we call a Connect America Fund, about $4.5 billion per year to mostly rural communities uh, to ensure that infrastructure is being built that is broadband enabled. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you, you, our, our parents and, and grandparents, you know, where we all grew up, what we call ourselves being now city folk, um, we, most of us came from those rural communities. Right. And those communities are not as uh, electronically, technologically, or, you know, from an infrastructure standpoint, they're not as robustly invested in as the urban centers. It makes a lot of sense. Why not? That fewer people, uh, you know, fewer return on equity. I don't want to get so wonky here, but the business case is often not being made. 
So what we recognize is that we all suffer if our rural communities um, are on the other side of the uh, connectivity uh, divide. So we have this uh, fund in place to take uh, that addresses that. Secondly, all of us know about E-Rate, the schools and libraries program, which has been a lifesaver for those students. Uh, those libraries are our resource centers. Uh, you know, all of us have benefited and continue to benefit from um, libraries that are connected because a lot of us, too many of us, do not have those options at home. Right. Millions of people do not have broadband at home. And they use those schools and they use those libraries to fill that gap. We just mentioned the Lifeline program. Mm -hmm. Not only is that responsible for a dial tone, but if that program is allowed to be what is structured and has been reformed to be under the previous administration, we will enable uh, those who cannot afford broadband service uh, to have a subsidy that could be used to connect themselves to the most powerful, uh, the, the greatest equalizer of our time. And I, and I think that's a broadband connection because it allows all of us to have access to that doctor that is not nearby, um, you know, to that, um, you know, the clinician can, that can help us navigate us, that healthcare navigator with yeah. our kids, to the, that nutritionist that, you know, might not be in that a rural community, but with a, a click of a mouse or, or with using my mobile phone that has a broadband connection, then now I can speak to that person and keep myself a, a bit uh, more healthy, even though I personally need some counsel on that. These are the things uh, that are possible if we're truly connected. Um, and if we do something at the FCC, uh, like ensure that the Lifeline program is uh, out of reach, uh, not having uh, that investment going into those rural communities, um, having issues when it comes to the schools and libraries program. And here's the kicker. We have a rural healthcare program uh, that um, is a $400 million per year investment that we're making to those smaller clinics in rural communities that will allow them to be connected um, to help with uh, medical records and, and, and telemedicine activities. Mm -hmm. if, if we don't continue to enable all of those to function, then we're going to have a disconnected society and those who could bridge the gap um, when it comes to health and wellness will not be able to do so because um, if we do less than we're capable of doing, then uh, our citizens will get less than in terms of what they truly need. And I, I think health care um, and, um, you know, those opportunities to stay well. I think that's, I, I think, honestly, that's our number one priority here. Because, again, if you don't have a healthy community, if, you, if that, that single, you know, mother who qualifies for Lifeline who makes less than $14,000 a year and is in a rural community, she can't afford to take off on work to see a doctor. But if we've enabled her with the tools that she needs, then she will be able to get some care, particularly with um, something that could be minor, like a sinus infection, like a cold. Um, I hate to mention this, like a UTI, some of those common types of um, ailments that, um, that she could be treated virtually with a consult. If she is not treated and can't take off from work, it's going to be way more serious for her way more serious for her family and way more expensive for all of us to address. Yep. Now I um, uh, wanted to bring out this point. So in um, Congress, right, there are a number of legislators that are 
very pro broadband and community broadband. Um, you have a number of legislators that are very uh, supportive of telemedicine and telehealth. Is there a way to bring those groups together because what they represent together uh, might mean the difference in good uh, broadband policy as well as getting better uh, telehealth policy? Does that make the sense? short answer is yes. One of my most surprising and productive meetings took place with um, someone on the Hill that uh, when I first walked in, I didn't know if we would have anything in common, mm. to be honest with you. Mm. Everything about us was different. But when we walked in, the first thing I mentioned, and I'm not sure why, um, was telehealth and telemedicine. Mm -hmm. It started a dialogue and a conversation uh, that uh, affirmed what you just said. There is no one um, on this, uh, on Capitol Hill, you know, at the FCC, the, 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 we all see the benefit that will derive from this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What we are getting hung up on a lot, how do we advance all of this? The tools that we need to enable this, because it's not going to just be infrastructure in the ground that's going to um, solve the problem. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just going to be um, schools and libraries connected that will solve the problem. If I don't and cannot afford um, a, a device, be it wired or wireless at home, mm -hmm. um, you know, if I, I don't have a dial tone or a signal or a connection, then I'm not going to have that continual ability to, uh, th th that access to care. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about, when we take our political postures about net neutrality, dare I say, um, Lifeline and other hot button issues, we have to um, dial back a moment and say, what does this all mean? Right. You know, what if, if I can have a paid prioritization type of um, infrastructure, you know, when it, with, with, which is what will happen, what's about to happen with um, the repeal of the uh, net neutrality rules, then I can charge that small hospital more. What does that mean? They're going to have to pass that cost on off uh, to you, and now it might be out of reach. If I can slow down your traffic, if I can do other things than that, that, that app that will allow me to download um, my particulars and share with my, the provider of my choice, or that, the, that will allow me to um, use that wearable or that, um, uh, that a wireless a blood, blood pressure cup that I could upload my um, vitals to my clinician and in real time, you can tell me whether I'm in a safe zone or not, mm -hmm. or that connected scale uh, that would tell you that if, I, uh, if, 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 if Monday I, I, I weighed uh, 120 and, um, and Wednesday I weigh one, uh, 125, that there might be a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now those are ideal weights for me, but that's another subject. Well, well, well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if that is the case, you can tell in real time um, that if something, if I'm retaining fluid or, or something is, is going on with me, but without connectivity, without everything being equal uh, in terms of, um, you know, my traffic versus your traffic versus someone, other, someone else's traffic, if someone is, a, is allowed to throttle, slow down, and block, and, 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 and uh, again, play favorites, then we're going to have a problem along the delivery uh, of, you know, playing uh, along the, uh, that type of uh, spectrum. So all of that is so important. Um, 
And we can't just speak it, we have to implement it. Um, and as lawmakers, as policymakers, uh, as regulators, and as um, clinicians, all of us need to know that um, we need to look at what the goal is. And the goal when it comes to healthcare should be better delivery models. It should be better outcomes. Um, and how do we get that? And we need to really have serious conversations about how we get there, what tools are needed, particularly those um, in um, rural and low-income communities, because to be honest with you, and this is no fault of their own, this is where um, the high costs are coming in, mm -hmm. because if you don't treat my cold and it, it, it graduates or augments to pneumonia or something else, it's going right. to be even more expensive for you to treat. Right. And that cost is passed on to all of us. Mm -hmm. So now, um, to put things in, again, the context for the, uh, the viewers, um, the issue with net neutrality or an issue is that you don't want to have your broadband going through the same changes that we're having in airline travel where everything costs, where there's, um, you know, there's, there's a fee for everything, including getting your bags uh, on the plane with you, on the, you know, on the overhead. Um, those kinds of uh, adverse uh, changes are the result of lack of competition and a lack of enough regulatory oversight to bring these things in the check. So basically, if a person wants to understand what net neutrality is, right, just look at the airline and figure out those type of rules just being now uh, brought over to broadband. And then after they get this you know, light bulb coming out, coming out on, what can they do to help you? You know, you, uh, you know, fighting this good fight, you know, because a lot of people might think, well, it's right. the same, but I can't do anything. Maybe they well, can. This week marked a very important milestone in the net neutrality debate because what the FCC did was publish uh, this uh, decision in the Federal Register, and that started a clock ticking. Okay. It um, told um, lawmakers that if they want to see something different through a Congressional Review Act, they've got uh, about 60 days uh, uh, to, uh, to do so. It told um, those who are wishing, wishing uh, to file something different, if they have a problem with what uh, the repeal of net neutrality, it lets those people who are interested to know um, that, uh, that, that the clock is ticking. It allows that's a sort of a green light for anyone who cares about uh, their access, their traffic being treated equally. Mm -hmm. And another thing, particularly because we're talking about healthcare, you do not have, if this goes into effect, an expert agency called the Federal Communications Commission that is looking out for you when it comes to consumer protections. Mm -hmm. So all of that important sensitive information uh, that it would be beneficial for you, for your you know, doctors and others to know. There is nothing, there's no agency in real time saying how that information that is collected is treated. Can someone else use that, you know, um, you know, have access to that information? Can they use it? Can they aggregate it to sell you products to do something, um, you know, different? There is no cop on the beat. 
um, that is protecting you when it comes to your uh, interactions, um, you know, online. So this is a very significant matter uh, that uh, that communities, large and small, that individuals have still have a voice. Uh, there's nothing stopping them from coming to Capitol Hill to go into their state capitals to talking to their lawmakers about what these protections or lack thereof, what net neutrality means that my access over the internet, my traffic, um, uh, the, using the, the device of my choice if it's legal and, and not harmful to the uh, network, all of these things could be at risk um, if, uh, if, if, and I think we have uh, on the cusp of doing it, and I say we, I mean the FCC majority because I voted against it, if we have the keys to the internet handed uh, to a handful of internet service providers, they will be dictating what our experiences are. And one other thing that you brought up that it was interesting, almost 50% of us at our homes have only one choice when it comes to internet, an internet service provider. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about deregulating a market and repealing rules, that's fine if we have a competitive market. But when it comes to your internet service uh, provider at home, you do not, most of you, most of us, do not have a competitive market. Most of us have one choice. We're lucky if we have two, and too few of us have three or more. Right, right. And that's very difficult. Uh, in terms of the, the public activism uh, aspect of things, um, I'm really entranced by what's happened uh, after the uh, recent shooting in what was it, Texas, Florida, I think Florida, and all of a sudden the youth have become a political force. They are going to meetings, they're going to town halls, they're going to watch over um, uh, legislators as they address uh, or not address gun laws and so forth. Is it that? type of activism, can that make a difference in some of the policies, such as the broadband policies? Can we get, if we can get some sort of mirror um, response, a response that's similar to what they're doing uh, across the country, really, with the youth right now, can that kind of activism uh, be brought to bear in the name of broadband policy? So I will answer that in this way, which is why the net neutrality principles uh, that we uh, put in place um, in uh, 2015 are so important. Just think about it. If you go back, you know, this is uh, Black History Month. Mm -hmm. And if you go back to, uh, to the freedom, freedom fighters and, and what they were doing back in the um, 40s, 50s, and 60s, because again, it didn't start in the 60s. A lot of us um, are, are you know, this is, um, a lot of us have a lot to learn when it comes to um, you know, our quest for civil um, and equal rights. Um, but when you think about how they communicated back in the day, um, they used um, you know, sometimes party lines or, or you know, a, 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 a telephone network that an operator controlled. And sometimes those calls did not get through because you had an unfriendly operator that didn't want you to get the word out. So I look at it, you know, fast forward to now when you have uh, these platforms enabled um, uh, by broadband and the internet connection uh, that is the, the communications tool of the day 
that we can find out things and get the word out in real time about what's going on in our communities and what um, and, and what the movement and the temperature is again and almost immediately as soon as, as we put it out there. This is their tool. They're digital natives. They recognize, you know, the, the, the power um, that they are entrusted that we have passed on to them uh, through these legacy networks uh, to um, in, in, in real time through, um, you know, these um, uh, sometimes uh, uh, ever evolving platforms in terms of how we are using it. That in and of itself is important because think about it. Um, when we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, Mm -hmm. so when we talk about talk about what happened in Ferguson and, and a number of other places, we would not have found out about it if we relied on our legacy media platforms. They did not cover it. They paid no attention to us. Mm -hmm. They ignored what was happening in these communities. But for an internet connection, particularly a mobile internet connection, um, a, that video taken on those cell phones in real time and letting people know what was happening. Mm -hmm. But for that, we would not know what was going on in our community. Mm -hmm. Because I'm from South Carolina, and um, there, this, we distinctly, we can point to you um, where the, uh, the owners, particularly of the newspapers of the day, decided they were not going to cover the civil rights movement because they concluded something very important. If we don't cover it, then it's like it never happened. And so that to me is why I'm so passionate about net neutrality and the openness and you know, the access that these um, platforms um, bring in and enable because there is not a gatekeeper saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stifle that, I'm not gonna cover it, therefore you'll never find out about it. And so when people go like, what's the big deal? You know, what's the fuss about? Why is it so important when it comes to what's going on in our community? when it comes to access to healthcare and other um, educational and, and other opportunities, there is but one platform, I believe, in the 21st century that is the greatest equalizer. And that's this one. Right. Uh, that's this one. And, and so that's why it's so important for our, the voices to be heard. Right. Um, while I can't, as a policymaker, advocate, I can tell you uh, that this power uh, that a connected um, that connected platforms enable um, allows for messages and words and movements and the ability uh, to get well and stay healthy. This will allow this to happen without the legacy gatekeepers. And if we're not careful, then you will have uh, gatekeepers 2.0, and and all of us will suffer from that. I hear you. Look, I know you're pretty busy, so I'm gonna just uh, close with one last question. Um, there's a lot of hype around telemedicine and tel telehealth and so forth. From your perspective, what are the types of benefits or specific applications that you've seen that will uh, change uh, healthcare as it's being right. delivered Currently, I could download or use uh, my mobile device and speak to my clinician. I could, um, in, in, in real time, you know, take my blood pressure and, and other vitals, um, text that or upload that um, through an app or, or, or SMS or whatever device and get that to um, my, um, you know, clinician so you can evaluate in real time. 
I mentioned, you know, that uh, blood pressure cup and, and that scale that I can get on or, or take right away and you see my vitals um, in real time. I can get a second opinion without leaving my house, just, you know, transporting uh, um, my diagnosis uh, um, and my prognosis, you know, on to another clinician and get a second opinion, particularly if it, it's something um, um, you know, significant. You know, we talk about wearables and, and alike and all of those things are good, but what they are, uh, what they are reflective of, what these devices are reflective of is our ability to cut out the traditional barriers to care. Yes. Yeah. I don't have to take off from work often you know, to treat something, you know, um, that, um, that we could just, you know, talk about or, or text about, you know, I, you know, I, 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 if I am, you know, immobile or um, have some kind of other cognitive or, or, or something that, um, uh, that uh, prevents others um, from, uh, from taking me somewhere, then I can still uh, receive care. Mm -hmm. We all know at big cities and small towns that transportation is a problem particularly if you're a senior, you don't have a license, you can't drive. How do you get um, to places? We, in those big cities, it takes four, you take four hops on a bus to try to get um, somewhere. By the time you get there, you've forgotten what's wrong with you. You haven't passed out on the bus. You know, these are the types of things that um, telehealth and telemedicine um, could, um, uh, could better enable in terms of care. The FCC has done something um, on two fronts that I think are worth mentioning. We have this Connect to Health Task Force uh, that was instituted back in 2014 that is looking at that um, intersection of broadband health uh, and technology. Mm -hmm. And knowing if we have the right type of partners, like we do with the National uh, Cancer Institute, uh, with um, the Markey uh, Health Center, which I think is a medical school uh, in, in Kentucky, the University of California, San Diego, they're coming up with a model. They're, they're a, it's a multi-year program where they're looking at those high rates of cancer in Appalachia and seeing what they can do to address those. Pilot pilots like this one, the one in Mississippi that is looking at uh, diabetics and trying to control you know, their outcomes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, again, we have a mapping tool that that Connected Health Task Force developed that all the way down to the county level, it looks at broadband connectivity, what else is going on um, in the area, and you can upload different types of uh, variables. Like I can look at veterans um, who have high blood pressure um, in, um, in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, all the way down to the county level in Berkeley, um, in Berkeley County in South Carolina. And what that means is I can see what's happening in real time. Mm -hmm. I can see if what we call double burden um, counties, um, uh, you know, if that is a double burden county, meaning they have high negative health outcomes mm -hmm. and low broadband penetration. And I can do a number of things. Um, I can target money to go there. I can make different um, political or economic decisions. We can make better regulatory decisions as to, uh, uh, you know, as to whether or not uh, we need to um, bolster or, or, or do more things in terms of uh, uh, investment and other things. And so when we look at it from a holistic standpoint, and I'm going to borrow from a, a past chair, what connectivity can enable, mm -hmm. if we look at it at that and stop with the political posturing um, and say, you know, what, what can this mean, particularly for people who don't have access, 
who can't afford the, the traditional uh, platforms, if we look at it in that way and saying, I know that we can have better outcomes, we can be more efficient, do it less um, expensively, if we look at it from that perspective, I think we'll be well on our way to not only curing um, what ails us in this country, but doing so uh, uh, less expensively. Great. And that is a very good wrap up and summation of our situation right now. Uh, it's, it's rough. It's rough. It, it's, rough. Uh, it's rough being disconnected. Um, it's rough being sick and disconnected. Right. But I, I'm here to say that uh, we have the tools uh, to do something about it. And I think we need to um, have the conversations to get it done. There's nothing stopping us from doing it, um, you know, other than the externals, which are controllable. And so I say, let's get, uh, get a hold of ourselves and um, let's uh, connect America and, and let's um, make all of our citizens uh, uh, more well and more healthy. Great. Thank you very much, Commissioner uh, Tyron. It's been a pleasure to hear and see you this time around. Yes. Um, I appreciate, as I'm sure all of my listeners do, I appreciate the fight that you are bringing to this um, issue and uh, anything that we can do, you know, I think there, there are many people that are willing, I just need to get some general idea of like, how can I help? I think that that, that, that should make a big difference. And so continue on, fight on, get it, all, get it all done. Get it all done. Thank you. Be well. Thank, Thank you. you. Take care. Yeah. Wow, that was a good summation um, of the issues facing uh, those who would get um, more uh, health care uh, to uh, low-income areas, uh, underserved areas, and it's also a good uh, breakdown of um, you know getting brought into these areas as well. Uh, one of the things that happened uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, the FCC uh, announced that they were going to have a $100 million grant program, um, and they are right now starting to do a process of gathering information from the public and to uh, help understand, uh, help you guys understand some of the particulars of the, uh, the notice process. Um, I have John Rinhauser who is the executive director of the Schools, Health, and Library Broadband Coalition. Uh, he has actually been on our show a couple times, and um, I'm going to let John, hey, welcome, welcome back. It's nice to be here, Craig. Thank you. Excellent. Well, jump right in. Um, uh, big is, uh, I think maybe to get some people may not be aware of the fact that the FCC actually has several uh, uh, pots of uh, cash that, that affects or that improves um, uh, broad. And uh, I'd I like to give just like an overview of some of the um, other uh, grants besides this one that's now formulating for the telehealth world. Sure. So I can help uh, 
talk through some of those issues, Craig. Uh, before I get to the specifics of your question, though, I would like to uh, commend Commissioner Clyburn for her vision and leadership. You know, she did a lot of work behind the scenes to get this, to launch this uh, connected care program. And even though it was not formally released until after she had left the commission, um, and Commissioner Carr deserves a lot of credit for picking this up and moving this forward. But before Commissioner Carr came to the FCC, it was Commissioner Clyburn that was really the lead and the, the driving force behind uh, all this FCC work to promote uh, telemedicine. So I was really glad that you featured her on the first part of this program. And she's so eloquent about the need for personalized medical care to the home. And that's really where the market is going, and so it makes a lot of sense for the FCC to be exploring how it can help to promote telemedicine to the home. Because just as we have a trend toward personalized learning from the schools where students are taking online classes and doing homework online and doing it from home, and just like libraries are lending out hotspots so that people can take, get Internet access at home, uh, we also need to be thinking about how we can promote telemedicine at the home. And so, in general, what the FCC is doing here um, is really uh, trying to advance the ball and provide uh, that greater connectivity to improve uh, the quality of health care that low-income consumers are able to achieve. So, the Shelby Coalition is very supportive of the general direction of this uh, proceeding that the FCC has launched. There are a lot of legal questions and practical questions which we could get into if you'd like on this interview, uh, but just in general, I think the FCC needs to be commended for moving the ball forward in this proceeding. Okay. Well, probably in the interest of time, I should just jump right into the uh, this whole telehealth uh, initiative by the FCC. Um, so what's your take on the, um, you know, what folks to do, and then we can go talk about, um, you know, how people can participate in the rule setting process right so this uh it may be a three or four step process uh so let me okay. just walk this through uh because it's not going to happen right away or overnight but it's going to need some consistent mm -hmm. input so uh, the fcc adopted a notice of inquiry um, and so that's the first stage where the fcc is you know, exploring these ideas, uh, it did not adopt a, a notice of proposed rulemaking. That could be the next stage after this notice of inquiry. So the notice of inquiry is usually a just very broad general request for information. Um, but it's interesting that they called it a notice of inquiry, but then when you look at the specific questions that the FCC asks, they're, they're very specific questions about how to design the program. And it almost reads as if the FCC would go right to a final order after this. So the next uh, step is for comments are due to be filed on September 10th, and then reply comments about a month after that. So that's one way that anybody who's interested can file in support of, of or, or in opposition. But uh, for those who are in support, that, that's their opportunity to file some general statements about the benefits of this program. But then the FCC might go to an NPRM, uh, or it could go to a final order, uh, go directly to adopt rules to um, uh, adopt this pilot program and, and, and make the funding available. And then they would set up an application process 
probably through USAC, which is the Universal Service Administrative Company that manages all the applications for E-rate and rural health care. So then for applicants to actually get access to the money, they would have to file an application with USAC. Uh, but those rules for how the application process will work have not been set up yet and maybe another year before they are. Wow, it is a long time. Well, actually, let me back uh, back you up a little bit. Um, in this case, it wasn't a mandate of Congress. So basically, the FCC has uh, a series of steps that they ask people to go through in order for the FCC to get uh, public comment to get um, and at some point get some um, direction from the public and other people that are involved or have an, you know, have an interest in this to help the FCC uh, formalize and then finalize some of the rules that address how and who gets the money that we're talking about here. Correct. A decent assessment? Yes. So, so first they will take comment. So on this NOI, Notice of Inquiry, uh, they'll take comment in mm-hmm. September and October, and then they'll come out with the next document. Uh, if it's an NPRM, they may ask for another round of comments from the public before the final order. And then after the final order, they'll set up an application process, so a third round of, of potential input from, from applicants uh, before the okay. money is issued. So. Right. There are a lot of questions about how they design the program and the $100 million that they've put on the table. Uh, that's you, We could ask for more money or less money, uh, but that's probably the FCC has signaled that's the direction that they're intending to go right now unless there's some major change in their, their train of thought. So, citizen or even, you know, people that are directly involved with broadband and so forth and telehealth, um, how much impact do they have in, uh, you know, in this uh, public comment period? Well, the FCC does read all the comments, and they take them seriously, and you'll often find that the uh, the next order or uh, NPRM will often cite to the comments that have been filed. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what they they did in the you know when they increased to the cap on the rural health care program they cited the Shelby Coalition comments and a lot of other comments that were filed through the public uh, filing process. So I think what the FCC is looking for here is some uh, comments of support for this idea, and because uh, mm-hmm. it's clear the FCC wants to thinks that it, it this is where it wants to go, but it wants to. It, it put, put out this NOI because it really wanted to attract some comment from the general public to say, hey, are we on the right track? Are we doing the right thing? What do you think about this? Um, and they might, if nobody files in support of it, then they might say, well, it looks like the market doesn't care, and so we won't do it. So if you do think it's a good idea, as we do, then we really strongly encourage uh, you know, people to file comments in support of the idea so that the FCC feels confident that it that can move forward. Mm-hmm. Now, is there a, I don't know, a strategy from the consumer side, you know, if we want to have the maximum impact on uh, this process, is it better to have, you know, a group of 
uh, individuals and organizations come together and then draft a uh, response or say, you know, we, the unsigned, feel this and that about, you know, this particular program and then this and the costs and, and, and so forth? Oh, it can be done both ways. I mean, the Shelby Coalition, we're a pretty large coalition of about 150 organizations. We're going to be filing comments uh, on behalf of a large number of entities. But uh, it's also worthwhile for individual uh, healthcare providers uh, and individual consumer organizations to file uh, on their own because that gives even more mm-hmm. credence outside the beltway. You know, to have people outside the beltway file uh, gives the FCC greater confidence that sort of the real world really cares about this program. Is there a disadvantage to not being in that beltway? Um, you know, someone that's in a, you know, a farm in Iowa or, uh, you know, folks that are on the West Coast. Um, now, granted, there are, you know, there is the Internet, and you can always get to the FCC's website and put your comments in there. But is there an issue of um, geography that may hinder people or, you know, or they're feeling like they won't be taken seriously? No, I, I think the FCC listens to all the comments, and, no, they will be taken seriously. Um, mm-hmm. And because it's often the people that are actually providing the healthcare services that have the most credibility with the FCC. Right. So, you know, the Shelby Coalition tries to be that intermediary. So we're going to be gathering stories from real life practitioners uh, to put into our comments. And anybody who wants to work with us to file comments, we're happy to help them uh, either by adding their name to our comments or providing us anecdotes that we can include in our comments, or I can help them individually if they'd like to file their own individual comments. Um, We'd be happy to help folks uh, navigate through the FCC's portal, uh, the ECFS portal, where you actually file the comments. Mm -hmm. Um, Is this this process different than the process we went through with the broadband stimulus eight, nine years ago when, you know, we had the, um, all, you know, all these rules, rules that were established and, and all and so forth. Will it be a similar kind of um, uh, process or is there something else we should know about the process? Well, yeah, I mean, there are similarities and differences. So, the okay. the BTOP process that was set up by the stimulus bill in 2009, um, that was run by NTIA. So that was a different government agency. Uh, and also that program already, you know, Congress gave NTIA the money, the $4 billion ah, to use. Right. And so uh, then NTIA uh, did take comment and came out with the rules for how to apply for that funding. Um, and that was a competitive grant program. Uh, this program by the FCC, even though you've, Craig, you've used the term grant, it's actually technically not a grant program uh, because oh, okay. it is a, a pilot program. Uh, there are different federal rules that kick in for grants, um, but the FCC, since it's an independent agency, can't issue grants, but it can provide funding, and they just call it something else to avoid uh, triggering some of those other federal 
requirements, which I think makes it a little easier for the FCC to award this money. But there will be some competition for this FCC money. I mean, $100 million is not a lot of, of, of money, and they're looking at roughly 20 projects to fund for about $5 million each. So, you know, when we get to that stage, uh, I expect we'll have many more applications than the 20 that they can fund. So if, if applicants are interested in this program, they really need to put together a very high-quality uh, application with uh, testimony from the um, potential beneficiaries and some examples of real-world success they've had running this technology and running these programs in order to give the FCC confidence that if they award uh, money to this uh, applicant that it's going to be money well spent. But also the other right. factor, too, is that I'll just – I'm sorry, I'll add one more. You know, this, no, no, since it is a pilot program, um, this is really an initial start by the FCC to explore a variety of different ways of providing telemedicine. So uh, it, it, my, my uh, recommendation to the FCC is going to be that they should set up this program so that they intentionally choose – a wide variety of kinds of applications from a wide variety of applicants uh, just to be able to test out different scenarios, you know, urban, suburban, and rural markets um, using wireless technologies of different sorts. They could propose wireless different kinds of frequency bands that could be used for this wireless service, different kinds of devices, different kinds of apps, different kinds of customers. So all of those are going to factor in. The real, The closest analogy would be what the FCC did about five years ago with the Lifeline program, where the FCC uh, awarded some pilot program uh, uh, funding to different applicants to explore how to provide low-cost broadband service to low-income consumers. And that's exactly what the FCC did. They chose a variety of different providers and then they, uh, and circumstances, and they issued a follow-up report about three years later, analyzing the the lessons learned from those pilot projects that were funded. That, that's, mm -hmm. that's, I think, how this is going to work as well. They, they should choose a variety of different kinds of circumstances and then issue a report later that will help to identify how the program, you know, if they want to provide more long-term funding, then, but first they need to do these pilots and then do a study of the lessons learned, and then they'll be in a better position perhaps to award some long-term funding. Mm -hmm. Now, do you have a sense of, you know what? I mean, opening up the idea of having you know a variety of solutions that are proposed, but do you have a sort of a sense of what kinds of um, processes or whatever? And what I mean is, like for example, um, uh, you know, there's two parts of this. There is the uh, infrastructure part that actually gets telemedicine applications or whatever between point A and point B. You know, you have uh you have the uh the doctors and then you have you know private uh um medical professionals, you have uh public hospitals and, and facilities and so forth. Is there some sort of I don't know rhyme or reason reason to how they might uh approach this? Um you know, I mean, it's good to have you know having it open, open-ended, and let as many ideas as possible flow. But shouldn't there be some sort of at least some level of structure that 
they get that they guide from, or is that a, that that's a stepping off point? Yeah, it's it's really hard to say. I mean, they've identified some of the parameters here. They do want to these programs that address the needs of low income people and veterans right. in particular. Right. So those uh, two customer groups are going to be the most um, the, uh, favored, if you will, in their uh, as they set up the, the rules for this pilot program. They are focused on wireless primarily and not wireline and not fiber. So they're trying to get um, applications that are going to provide wireless telemedicine to the home, to these low-income consumers mm-hmm. and veterans. Uh, beyond that, I think the... Uh, the field is open for different technologies, different devices, different kinds of services, different kinds of medical services. You know, the commissioner talked about uh, the University of Mississippi that's run a very successful program uh, to bring wireless to help diabetes patients uh, have remote home telemonitoring. And there are other healthcare providers that have already been experimenting with and in some cases using wireless services and money-saving services. They've saved money on their healthcare costs by deploying this technology to the home. So um, I think the FCC also wants to evaluate how much, uh, not only what the costs are providing the service, but how much money does it save uh, and and the quality of the healthcare that's being provided. So there are all kinds of different healthcare services, telestroke uh, services or heart patient monitoring um, you know, just name a, a disease pretty much, and you, you need to have some sort of a monitoring to be able to uh, identify what patients might be at risk and, and need further mm-hmm. medical assistance. I think it would be I somewhat interesting to, to figure out, um, I mean, you have the infrastructure people. You you have the, you know, they have wireline, fiber, uh, fixed wireless, cellular, and so on. Then you have all of the clinicians and the vendors that are creating um, telehealth applications. And these aren't necessarily entities that actually hang out together, you know. And I'm sort of, I'll be be serious, I'll be um, curious to know how they'll be able to reconcile, you know, the needs and the benefits of one group versus the other because they're not necessarily, um, you know, they almost should work the same way. Well, that's right. You know I mean, that's why this is, yeah, this is going to be very interesting for just that reason um, mm. because the, the benefits are going to vary from patient group to patient group. Um, and it's, you know, a little like playing God for the FCC uh, <laughs> to choose, you know, which medis- medical services or which kinds of patients are going to get the benefits of this program. But it is important to gather as much information and data as possible. And that's why I think the FCC deserves to be commended because here they really are trying to uh, to get the data uh, through some real-life examples that will then inform their decision-making long-term. Uh so right. I, I think this is an important uh, piece of the puzzle of gathering as much real-world information as they can. No, that makes a lot of um, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, from what I've gathered in the last year of doing research in the telemedicine world, um, the uh, the ability to document 
the um you know the the wins that they have the losses the things they might want to do differently or better what have you it it when you're building a lot of these applications your main concern is just getting the application out the door and if you're you know if you're venture funded then you have to worry about you know that group because they've got money in the in the game and and so forth and so you know you're right about the whole need for um, data gathering and analysis, because I think that's one thing that actually even with the community broadband folks, um, they get so focused on just getting the, the uh, network out the door that doing the stuff that will justify the invent, uh, investment gets, you know, sort of short change and, um, you know, that's rough. That's a little rough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And in addition to the data gathering issues, there are also some legal issues uh, that the FCC is going to have to work its way through. Um, We may not need to address those right now in the pilot program, but there are some issues. I'll just mention these briefly so uh, you get a sense of, you know, can the FCC uh, provide funding for devices? Usually the FCC provides support uh, for building networks or for services right, over those right. networks. Uh, mm-hmm. Can it provide funding for apps on the devices? Uh, these are sort of untested. Actually, you know, back a long time ago when there was one AT&T phone system, when AT&T ran the world, the FCC did uh, regulate telephones. Uh, but back in the 70s, they realized, no, we don't need to regulate telephones anymore. That's a competitive could be a competitive consumer product that anyone could buy. So the FCC mm-hmm. deregulated and got rid of its authority to, to regulate the telephone device. But now is it proposing to fund devices, uh, mobile uh, devices going forward for these telemedicine? That would be an interesting uh, uh, change in, in FCC philosophy, which might be a good thing, but it's an issue. Um, right. There's also a question about the FCC uh, under this proposal said that the healthcare provider has to partner with a commercial broadband company, and that commercial broadband company, according to the FCC, has to be an ETC, an eligible telecom carrier, under the Lifeline program. Well, our view is you should not have to be an eligible telecom carrier because then they are pretty much restricted to the traditional phone companies. Uh, Most of the ETCs are the... uh, 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 incumbent companies that have been in service for a long time and don't include the, the newcomers. But a lot of these new services are innovative, are being pro- deployed by innovative wireless companies that may not be able to get ETC status from their states. So why should the FCC restrict this program only to those companies that can get ETC approval? Um, that's an open question, I think, that we might try to suggest the FCC should say to really to be most innovative and, and really gather the data from a variety of applicants, it should not be limited to ETCs. Gotcha. Okay. So ultimately, um, I would think the follow, you know, the bottom line is that uh, we only have a we have a minute to to, to respond, but um, we need to get as much input and creativity into this process from the get go as we can possibly can. Would that be a good assessment? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's so many of these rural hospitals that have been closing. 
So there's a you know, real shortage of good quality medical care, especially in these rural markets and for low-income consumers. So the more we can leverage this program to explore the use of these innovative technologies, I think the better off the country will be. Great. That will be very interesting to watch. Um, I wish you guys luck in terms of, you know, putting your two cents in and getting other people to do the same. Um, next uh, next Thursday, this, uh, this week, uh, I'm doing a uh, interview with uh, a doctor in Chattanooga who um, will talk a little bit about the, uh, the intersect between community broadband and um, telehealth. And I would imagine that you will, you know, obviously from your comments, will be advocating that as well, that kind of place. So thank yes, you very much, right. John. I appreciate your time. <laughs> and uh, thank you for our audience for uh, listening, and hopefully to see everybody there on um, Thursday. Take care. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.